1: Welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Will Braun. Today I'll be speaking with Jill Gentile about her book, Feminine Law, Freud, Free Speech, and the Voice of Desire. Jill Gentile authored the book with contributions from Michael McCrone. Uh, the book is published by Karnak in 2016. And to say uh, a little something about Dr. Gentile, she's on the faculty of NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, where she's the co-chair of the independent track. She's affiliated with several institutes in the area, some of which are the Institute for Psychoanalytic Study of Subjectivity in New York. Uh, um, she's also a corresponding editor of the Contemporary of Contemporary Psychoanalysis, and on the editorial board of the International Journal of Psychoanalytic Self Psychology. Her essays describing a semiotic and phenomenological trajectory of agency, desire, and symbolic life have been published in many psychoanalytic journals. Uh, Dr. Gentile, Jill, welcome to the program. Hi, Will. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm. Very, very excited to be speaking to you today. So um, first of all, I just want to say how much I loved your book. I wasn't Maybe. sure what to expect because it's there's so much in the title, right? Feminine Law, Freud, Free Speech, The Voice of Desire. And it, it sounds like it's a dense book, which it is, but I kind of nerded out a little bit. Like I re- There was so much in it to get excited about. So I just <laughs> want to tell you that uh, before we begin formally. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, but, well
0: that's a that's a fantastic beginning because I know it is dense, but to hear your um excitement is very thrilling for me as an author, given the ambitions of the book and my desire to reach an audience well,
1: it definitely um, so reached definitely reached me and and um took me back to freshman year of college in a seminar i took uh on democracy and i, mm-hmm. I I remembered a lot of stuff that the teacher taught us, and I was actually quite um, overwhelmed by the amount of research you did, not only in uh, the psychoanalytic direction, but just with the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So I guess my first question to you is, so how did you come to write the book? Um, What sort of sparked this idea, uh, and how did it come together?
0: Well, you know, that's—it's actually not the most straightforward uh, answer because they came together in some way the way an analysis proceeds. I started with an interest, a curiosity, a problem, and each each question led to new answers and new questions and new gaps and new confusions so i through my through my practice and my previous writing i've become very interested in how personal agency evolves over the course of an analysis. And I've written a great deal about the evolution of personal agency, of the semiotics of desire, and how um, phenomenology and semiotic empowerment kind of emerged. In tandem. So I was already becoming very interested in how language evolves, and that led me to this interest in semiotics, led me to this interest in Lacan, and I'd been formerly primarily situated in relational thinking. And alongside of that, I um, just became intrigued as I'm writing about. Uh, empowered communication I'm also becoming increasingly intrigued by how psychoanalysis begins as a relationship of hierarchy there's a doctor and a patient or an analyst and an analyst and an analyst and mm-hmm. yeah. and that the the battleground upon which that, that emerges so that the patient needs to gain her rights to her free speech, to uh, to work to claim her empowerment as a personal agent, as a sexual agent, as a political agent. And I started to think increasingly about how psychoanalysis becomes this sort of microscopic window into a process of transitional democracy. And once I was there, I, be, I just started to become increasingly, it opened up many questions for me. And since, again, I've been writing about speech and, and uh, the evolution of agentic speech, I Landed upon this, to me, this oddity that the First Amendment, in terms of U.S. constitutional democracy, and the foundational rule, rule the fundamental rule of psychoanalysis of free association, had re- were kind of remarkably analogous and yet had never been really treated in tandem. And so that opened the door to this puzzle I wanted to solve about the relationship between free speech and free association. Hmm. It started there, and maybe had I been more fully conscious at the time, I would have realized that this project would have inevitably led me onto the path and the terrain of the female body and the quest to signify the body, but that was—that's part of what emerged as the sort of semiotic mystery story of the book. I had not intended to write that, but to solve the problem of free speech, whether it's in psychoanalysis or democracy, it brought me—it brought me increasingly into the terrain of gender, class and um, what I ultimately named Feminine Law. So that's a long
1: answer to your No, it's a great answer. I mean, I, I'm really glad you said this because my sense of the book, in a way, it, it reads like a free association. So I'm glad that you say that because my, you kind of tackle one area, which kind of takes you to another area that opens up the idea of the feminine. And it really flows kind of like a free association would flow from the couch. So I'm, I'm really glad that that was kind of your experience writing the book because that was my experience reading your writing.
0: Very much. I mean, in fact, Michael McCrone who was editing and then uh contributing as a writer to the book would take a look at the book every 6 months or so and say this keeps this is like a different book now because I kept needing to reweave and rethread. The, the book became increasingly layered as these gaps and these questions and these um analogies kept opening up. For Mm -hmm. instance, we, you know, even beginning with um, how democracy and psychoanalysis begin in some ways in similar, with a similar set of problems, the sort of wish to overcome repression, or as a rebuke to tyranny, and to Help citizens or patients claim their rights to their own minds, to their own self-sovereignty, and then how that relates to collective sovereignty. These these analogies hadn't fully been; um,
1: they they just became more and more intriguing. Sure, let's begin with the power of speech, which is really mm-hmm. where you begin the book, and so. What is so powerful about speech and why is it so important?
0: Great question, and again, what's fascinating, when once I stepped into the literature, at least what what was unfamiliar to me, completely unfamiliar, was the First Amendment literature. And once I started to mine that literature, I realized there was this other analogy that emerged, which was that the First Amendment literature was filled with all kinds of case law and histories of how we've gained our free speech um a more robust free speech regime in the States. But it didn't really elaborate on why speech mattered, why it's such a core fundamental precept that we've built, that mm-hmm. we've, that it's become our prime, you know, the, we've attached the primacy to speech that we have. Um, and there's a similar resonance and um, psychoanalysis where Freud makes this his fundamental rule. He's very committed to it throughout his writing career and yet he doesn't elaborate it very much. It and it's even though free association has been written about a great deal, it's not written about in a very coherent it's kind of a, it's a very scattered literature, and I think what's left unelaborated is why do we value, uh, well, first of all, the links between free association and curative speech are left implicit and not particularly explicit, and so we're lacking in both a, a dedicated discourse about why speech matters. Um, but to answer the question, I think, and Jacques Lacan, I think, is is probably the theorist who um, really comes in and really champions speech in a way mm-hmm. that's much more explicit than other theorists. But to Freud's credit, of course, he's the one who landed upon what would become known as the talking cure, thanks to um, his female patient, uh, Bertha Pappenheim, Anna O., oh, as we affectionately refer to her, mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or refer to her as, um, but Fritz's path was interesting. Right, he began in this age of practice where there was this interest in hypnosis, and he was interested in hypnosis, the practice of mental telepathy, if you will, and he was interested in it as well in practices that involved physical touch. So he came, he he was trying to find some sort of direct path to the unconscious. He was trying to find a way that would um, link conscious with unconscious, but but actually would bypass the need for mediation. Because he was so interested in truth, right? The, the, the idea of an independent truth mm-hmm. to unconscious experience. But in the end, the scientist that he was, he recognized that these paths were not providing the empirical, and the, the empiricist, empiricist that he was. He was he wasn't landing upon um, the data, the scientific data that would satisfy him. And what he landed upon instead was that speech was the bridging function. That actually the most direct path to unconscious communication was paradoxically through mediated communication. And so the path between body and mind was connected through speech.
1: You give this great quote you you quote Freud at the end of the at the end of the chapter and you say or you say Freud says right words are the most important media by which one man seeks to bring his influence to bear on another words are a good method of produ- producing mental change in the person to whom they are addressed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's
0: that, and that's exactly and and that's the piece that we often leave out that free association is not just sort of this solipsistic um right, speaking to ourselves in a in a monologue. And there's much precedent for this in the free association literature. Um We can look at Bolas, we can look at Anton Chris, we can look at some of the relational literature on free association, Lou Aaron has talked about this, how actually uh, Freud had already intuited what we might see as a democratic process in free association because Freud named a hearer, he named a partner in the, the, the journey of free association, that the patient's mandate was to actually free associate but in the presence of another to address his speech to another. Mm-hmm. So that line between how free association enlists the patient into the franchise of speech in a relationship human relationship
2: mm-hmm.
0: um is implicit And in some sense, this circumstance is explicit, but I think we too often forget that free association is an address. That's why transference analysis is so critical. Mm -hmm. And what we see that's missing in the First Amendment and in free speech in uh, most purported democracies is that actually there is this absence of a commitment to the process of hearing... Translating the partnership that's essential to enfranchising the disenfranchised
1: voice. I mean, mean it really... uh, A lot of the book brought to mind... Uh, questions that I have, I guess, about current discourse, in, in whether it be political or the way speech is mediated through social media, stuff like that today. And I was thinking, I mean, that's so beautifully put when Freud talks about it's an address to a listener. And then I wondered, are we moving towards as a this is maybe a bit of a digression from the book, but I think it's your book kind of sparks the question. Do you think that? In a way, we've stopped listening as a as a populace. In a way, as a as a polis, are we actually speaking, um, or conversing in an echo chamber to ourselves? Like the way that our Facebook feeds kind of just feed us back what we want to hear, or we watch political parties talk at each other, but there's really no uh, bridging that gap that you really, really highlight in their first chapter.
0: Well, I try, and I return to it over and over again because this again keeps becoming this um, this paradoxical uh, tension between freedom and constraint, and between and that parallels a, a challenge between the haves and the have-nots. So, the bugaboo, you know, kind of of democracy, but also in psych- psychoanalysis, is mm-hmm. this problem of equality and. So Tocqueville, years ago, when he first wrote about democracy, came to America, observed close at hand what was going on. He, you know, he worried that we would... End up speaking to ourselves, this sort of solipsism that he um, anticipated in terms of what he called the semblobs, that we would speak to like minded others, that we would become increasingly, in some ways, polarized as we actually have. And the, um, I think psychoanalysis in its own discourse kind of re- reproduce this this problem because over time, right, we split different schools of psychoanalysis from talking with each other. We We've not been very effective at talking to the world outside of ourselves. And so, though interestingly, this is a problem that psychoanalysis finally has really tackled theoretically. How do we speak to the other, to the person beyond us? This is what, like, So many conventions, so many current um, journal articles and uh, conferences are attending to this idea that we must speak, we must break um, out of our solipsism into the world beyond us. And so I think that tension in the history of psychoanalysis is paralleled by what we're seeing in public life and so we see the urgency we see what's happening in the world right now Black Lives Matter um, Occupy Wall Street the re- re- reaction to something like Citizens United which has created a widening gap As I mean there's so many widening gaps, so much that it's widened the gap between rich and poor haves and have nots and so what's happened to the listener in a world where uh the distribution of voice is incredibly inequitably distributed, that there's such gaps in power and access to speech outlets, notwithstanding the democratic, democratizing power of the Internet, um, which of course, not everybody has access to. Um, so I think you're right on <laughs> that we need the, we need to restore a good faith relationship between
1: listeners and hearers. Yeah well since we're talking about um, the Constitution and the First Amendment uh, and all the paradoxes inherent in freedom, uh, can you give the listeners just kind of a brief history which uh, which Part of it, this is when I was nerding out, I sort of loved the historical perspective of the Constitution and the First Amendment, that, you know, what I think of as free speech protections has not always been the case. And the Supreme Court uh, did not always see the First Amendment the way that a 2016 person might see it. So can you give us a brief kind of overview of the way the, the First Amendment has been viewed through history?
0: Well, it's a great question again, and and complicated. And I don't know that I can do justice to it um, in a short amount of time. But I, what I can say is that right from the get-go, there, well, first of all, there was argument about whether we we're even even going to have a Bill of Rights and the first, in, and what the sequence of the of the Bill of Rights would be. Mm-hmm. Finally, um, concluding with the free speech amendment as the First Amendment, although what we forget about the First Amendment is that it's actually a series of clauses and it includes the one we focus most and what I focus mostly on in the book is the freedom of speech. But it says essentially Congress shall make no law, abridging freedom of speech, but also freedom of the press, free exercise of religion, um, free... um, Freedom of assembly, freedom to petition the government. It's as Bert Newborn, a constitutional scholar, has written. It's really a, po- a poetic um, a blueprint for democracy in action. When you look at the sequence of each of the clauses, and actually I didn't actually list the clauses in um, in, in in order, um, but there's a way in which it links freedom of thought to freedom of speech to then these sort of collective freedoms and the power of the press to kind of provide a checks and balance function. So all of this is embedded in the First Amendment. Then what happens is we establish the First Amendment because we're a a new government and it's a fragile government. It is... Erecting itself in response to tyranny from Britain from the homeland, but the idea of protecting the government was at first much more of a priority than protecting anything that we've come to think about it nowadays in terms of minority voice or or even the majority voice so quite early on there's um a sedition act and there's um, pr- there are prosecutions for for um for criticizing the government criticizing uh Jefferson or John Adams. I think John Adams led, Adams led Congress to pass the Sedition Act. Mm-hmm. So we see the vulnerability of the government, and they're that they're accustomed to a certain kind of aristocracy and to a silencing of the people, and that then is mirrored over time in history, where every time there's a major threat, and by the way, at that time the founders are also witnessing what's going on in the French Revolution. And there's the fear of what can happen if mass democracy, if you will, kind of gains traction. And so there's also this tension, right? Always and and reverberates today between elitism and um, populism. So every time there's another war, there's this tension or a threat of war, a threat to the government. But where there, so there if, so there so we see, for instance, in World War One and World War Two, these um, conservative forces that start to um, uh, kind of restrict freedom of speech and limit the uh, the will of the majority, the, the, to punish, um, speech that is offensive to the government. So, stuff that seems amazing to us nowadays when we think that in the early part of the 20th century, draft resistors were seen as, um, outside of the realm of the First Amendment and were actually prosecuted and tried and punished and sentenced often to harsh sentences for distributing things like leaflets against the war or advocating for draft resistance that that kind of thing um so we've made a lot of progress but then again in the second world war right we see the internment of the japanese mm. we we see this way in which there's fear and retaliation it, it, is the kind of counterpoint to freedom and that we never quite trust the the voice of desire of the people's desire and and so that tension goes back and forth but over time as the government i think as the government became more secure as um after the civil rights um after uh the Civil War, there's a great deal of rhetoric during the Civil War that helped to promote the robustness of the First Amendment, which speaks to the power itself of free speech because the rhetoric that surrounded the Civil War was so um like the appeal to liberation, the appeal to equality to the dream of free speech was so incandescent. It just sparked so much um, enthusiasm. It really changed hearts and minds. So speech has this power. And so we see um, the movements against slavery and towards emancipation and towards this liberatory impulse and towards the equal rights amendment. Um, and so there, there's this movement, progressive movement, that then is linked with the periods of regression over and over. We see the same parallel in psychoanalysis, where you're mm-hmm. periods of opening a space and then these very conservative impulses that kind of become more um you know, an ego a more authoritarian or conservative orthodoxy that sets in. Um, but the first real um, victories for minority speech come in in the 20th century. It's—it's it, it's not until 1931 that a free speech claim actually wins, and—and and in. And, and that is often seen as what sets in our modern day love affair with the First Amendment. And again, rhetoric and speech had a huge impact on the public's conception of the F- First Amendment. So we have these m- major dissents written by Louis Brandeis and Justice Holmes and others, but really they, you know, this remarkable rhetoric that is so powerful it kind of seeps into people's hearts and minds about. Um, and I don't have the quotes in front of me, but the courage um, to to to, um, to be truthful and to not live in tyranny and not live in hatred and fear, and that inert inert people. It, these these quotes could have been written by Freud, yeah. Who of think- course was not exactly a fan of America, but.
1: But, but that's the parallel
0: going on simultaneously.
1: That's the parallel that I think is so great that you draw that here we have, uh, you know, I'd forgotten about the founding fathers, you, we, especially, I don't know, with all of the patriotism or Americanism or whatever that's going on right now, one would imagine, or if you watch Fox News, one might imagine that the founding fathers were champions of freedom of expression, but really they were quite concerned about mob rule and you draw the, the same parallel with Freud, that Freud had the same tension. He was all about freedom of speech, yet we need to be careful about freedom of speech. How much freedom? Where's the role of repression? And that repression is a good thing, not always a bad thing. And where's the balance? Mm
0: -hmm, mm It's an ongoing conversation. It really, throughout the case law of the First Amendment, this is this ongoing tension of where, and it starts with John Mills and John Stuart Mill about the idea of individual liberty is based in natural rights, and that liberty starts and stops where the other where it infringes on the other person's right. Natural rights. Mm-hmm. And so, and where it begins to do harm to another. Now, Freud, as we know, is all about, um, release of instinct and freedom from repression until World War breaks out and he suffers some personal losses in his own life that are quite devastating to him. And we see that the, his pioneering and you know initial exuberance about what the possibilities would be for languaging the body um he he starts to um grow more cautious, more pessimistic, more conservative, and then. As the new gold standard of pure, this idea of compromise formation—that mm-hmm. individual liberty must always meet some counterbalance in terms of the needs of the collective. Um, so, some of the constitutional writers on this talk about this as a balancing act. They're not talking about Freud, but they're talking about um, the balancing of individual and collective rights. So we, it, so we see this. Over and over and over and over. Um, I would say that I think psychoanalysis has a lot to contribute to this discourse, especially what's emerging nowadays. Um, and I want to privilege in this, in this sense, what's happening within relational thinking and intersubjectivity mm-hmm. literature in particular, because I think what we're discovering increasingly is that personal agency, the singularity of desire and freedom of expression emerge emerges in tandem with mutual recognition. It's not actually in opposition to but actually that we can't we can't really have a victory in the field of freedom of expression unless we also surrender to a Kind of mutuality of recognition and a mutuality of desire. So, in other words, we can't win this victory alone. We need each other. And that means we need to surrender to the listener, the hearer, the voice, the body of the other. Hmm. Um, and so there's no zero sum solution.
1: You raise a question in the book about free speech for whom? And you, and you speak about excluded voices, you know, and I, it, it is amazing, you know, that Freud really begins his, um, his science, his discovery, his, his journey with the silenced voices of women that, um, you know, we're not necessarily voices that were heard in Fendi Siècle of Vienna. One of the questions that I have, you give a great history about excluded voices in America, uh, in relation to our own democracy and freedom of speech. But I was also thinking about the current state of psychoanalysis. And are we doing a good enough job franchising excluded voices?
0: It's it's not a battle that we can win one time. It's not a single, you know, one-time victory. It's really a, a battle that needs to be fought and won, I think, in each generation, in society and in analysis, and in each individual analysis. Um, but it's another place where public life and psychoanalytic life actually intersect, because while both were predicated upon exclusions, right? we know that the First Amendment and um, the Constitution initially um, excluded the franchise of slaves, of women, and only many years later did both gain the rights to vote. Um, but psychoanalysis initially excluded people based on their diagnosis, um, people um, who were just uh, gays. And, uh, uh, there were various pathologies that were excluded, um, borderline narcissistic disorders. So we see that the franchise of who was eligible for um, psychoanalysis gradually was um increased and that was especially the case after again after traumas of World War one and especially World War two where um, there was a much more activist approach to psychoanalysis and to helping previously marginalized groups and voices get access to psychoanalysis and um, but and then and then technique also changed, right? We had a more activist technique. So now we could treat beyond neurotic problems, we could treat problems of trauma and um developmental and economic and environmental deprivation. But we're still not we still have a very long ways to go because any of us who attend psychoanalytic conferences knows that we're mainly preaching to our own choirs mm-hmm. and preaching to a very white audience, a, a group of white analysts. Exactly. And we know how expensive it is to participate in a sustained psychoanalysis. We know how much mental health um, uh, benefits and for people who do have health insurance and now With Obamacare, many more people have access to health insurance, and yet mental health coverage has been massively chipped away at um, for many people who are seeking psychotherapy. So the question of whether a commitment to free speech really needs to involve a commitment to some sort of psychotherapy privilege because we need we need to offer in society means by which people can begin to access their their human symbolic potential but if we can't if we're if we as a symbolic species are speaking signing creatures um but we develop our capacity to speak and to hear in relationship If we're deprived of the kinds of relationships that help to enfranchise us in a speaking, hearing community, um, then society's failing us. And psychoanalysis then also starts to fail members of society. So we need, in this sense, psychoanalysts need to also lobby outside of their practices to call attention to these inequities. Inequities that pervade our practices as analysts and only, and often underscore the huge, um, class differences, racial differences, and gaps in access to power and privilege. Because speaking is actually, even if we have a First Amendment right, it's not, it's something that we have, we need a partner to help us to gain that privilege and to exercise it.
1: You talk about the importance for symbolic discourse and why it's important for the space for symbolic discourse to be fostered. Um, I wonder if you could just briefly state for the listeners who might not be familiar with that term, um, what is it that you mean by symbolic discourse? And how do we as psychoanalysts create a space that facilitates uh, symbolic discourse?
0: It's a huge question. (laughs) <laughs> and a great question, and it takes up a it takes up a big big part of my book um well so all right, so Freud's interest is right the gaps in association he invites the patient to free associate patient actually the the first thing we learn as analysts is that people can't free associate they constantly interrupt their speech they um they become derailed, there are impasses, there are impediments. There are all kinds of constraints, um, but the constraints actually help to create a space for speech. And so part of my argument here is that we talk about free association, we talk about free speech. Now, right now I'm collapsing them, conflating them, even though there's an important difference between them. But I, at least one important difference, but others, Um, but if we need to bring our free associations into speech, we need to bring our body into, into speech, between mind and body, well, we're already talking about the emergence of a dialectical space between listener and speaker, between body and mind. Between the disenfranchised and the enfranchised, um, between the haves and the have nots. We're talking about how, and we see in these various court decisions how the, the Supreme Court has struggled with finding boundaries to speech to speech that create a space for speech in other words do people have the right to protest in the, spe- in the streets and to what degree do people have the rights to um, to the right to vote um do people so all of these questions do they have the right to burn a flag or burn a draft card what are the limits of hate speech Is hate speech free speech? And these are all questions that are actually really um, profoundly considered by psychoanalysis, but we don't usually use that language. Hmm. So, So most of psychoanalysis, we think of as cultivating free expression. And yet, we mostly think that regulating or censoring speech is antithetical, to the psychoanalytic project and to the democratic project, but because what we discover is that there ain't any there ain't such a thing as free speech. That free speech is cultivated in the context and is conditioned by constraint. Um, we're all the time fostering this space. So, what are the constraints there? We need to concede to the use of language. We need to concede to the idea that. Our free speech is actually conditioned by unconscious life. It's to a large degree overdetermined, so that's part of the paradox of freedom. It's a space between freedom and surrender to unconscious communication and dynamics. Um, That Freud's one of Freud's central discoveries, obviously, was the constraint of transference that Mm. the patient is invited to speak, but then is constrained by the relationship which becomes both the his obstacle but ally to cure. Um, so there are all these ways that we start to see how speech um, begins to be opened and shut down and opened and along the way um, what I start to observe as I'm doing this research is that um, there's this way in which silence is um, a lot of, almost more than free spe- free association, there's so many journal articles on silence. And so i become interested in this idea of what silence is communicating and how silence seems to shut down a space even as it opens up a space of resistance. And there's this period like in the 1950s or so when it seems that mainly male analysts are writing about silence. And they're writing about this idea of the patient's impediment to free association. They have nothing to say. And then that leads into this question of what the word nothing means. And that lands on this series of papers that is written and then sort of dropped. It seems like it doesn't get taken up again in the literature, uh-huh. where this idea of silence and nothing to say is associated to the nothing of the female body, and specifically the female genital body, that what is unspoken is the female vagina. The fem- and, and so this becomes, for me, the quintessential metaphor of space how do I get there is a more complicated question, but I we just briefly say that along the way, psychoanalysis has started to privilege all of these metaphors of space so we're we've been searching we've been increasingly searching for how to create space and how to set boundaries to create space? This is what the whole literature i think I think we can look at the whole literature on enactments in terms of how do we move beyond um coercive communication communication that shuts down space um, that disowns agency to opening a space for ownership for agency. And actually, for the physical body to reemerge in psychoanalysis, and therefore the vo- what I'll call the voice of desire. So, anyway, it's a very long answer, but no, that's great. It's all of these metaphors of space start calling attention to our need to reclaim an idea of symbolic space. That free speech is not just say whatever comes to mind, but it actually is say what comes to mind and be honest. It's already a space between freedom and honesty and we see this tension of how freedom is always harnessed by constraint and in the end symbolic space when it's grounded to the in the body also grants us to reality um an important point when we look at like the rhetoric of someone like Donald Trump who says whatever comes to mind mm. but with no accountability to reality so this is a huge um, contribution. I think psychoanalysis, something psychoanalysis really understands and can contribute to the public discourse.
1: Hmm. You know, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Esther Sperber, a friend of ours architect. Mm-hmm. And I never really thought about space in, in a way until you talk to an architect who deals in space constantly. Right. And she mm-hmm. said, architecture is basically defining space. Or it's putting the limit or the boundary on the space. And I, I never really thought about architecture being, you know, what was inside the building. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly the most important part. <laughs> it's what, mm-hmm. it's what we use. It's not the space itself. It's, it's the space itself. It's not the structure. It's what's sort of inside the space. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, which, it, it's the tension between both, but without mm.
0: the structure, we can't. We can't really access the space without yeah. some protective structure, and yet if it's all about the building or the the thing itself we're we're back in you know with for its original problem is it do we touch the body to heal the body and mind, or do we have to do something different? Because otherwise we collapse. Like Winnicott, I love Winnicott's work partly because he was so disciplined about this. His idea of transitional phenomena and the transitional object um, is that the symbol is born between reality, the real teddy bear, and the subject's imagination, the subject's mm-hmm. fantasy. And it's that space between um, that. That's where democratic life prospers. That's where symbolic life prospers. But when we don't have an equitable, um, you know, some equality in the franchise of speech, we the, the symbolic terrain gets really bottled up just the way a patient's body gets um uh becomes symptomatic the uh public sphere of discourse becomes symptomatic mm. and- Congealed in symptoms.
1: Can you speak about the importance of naming? I mean, we talk about uh, the space, but you really stress in your book uh, the importance of naming the space, naming the gap, symbolizing the feminine space, naming desire, naming truth. Can you speak to mm-hmm. uh, the importance of naming?
0: Yeah. Um, well, again, I think we I think we don't em- emphasize it enough in. Uh, psychoanalysis, but without naming, we don't have knowledge. And of course, in psychoanalysis, we're interested in the freedom to be curious, to know, to name. We're interested in um, truths that we can name that are, if they're not nameable, if they're not spoken, they remain hidden and obscured. And so if we're always um, interested in pushing the envelope to discover new truths novel truths, hidden truths, we need to have the courage and strength to name life's frontier of um, what lies at the frontier of what's unnamed Okay, I was just changing a receiver there Um so um the so this again brought me back to this um question of why do we why have we enabled a psychoanalysis that continues to privilege the phallic symbol and to continue to degrade and leave obscured and unnamed the vaginal symbol mm-hmm. and how from the get go, I mean, when you think about the whole project of psychoanalysis, Freud, Freud, I mean, he's such a masterful storyteller as well as, you know, had such a brilliant scientific mind. And for what, and however misogynistic he may have been, um, he's certainly a man of his times and of many, maybe of any time, but um, he, and he had this curious way, right, of simultaneously listening to women's voices and silencing them, speaking mm-hmm. over them, and and treating female sexuality and the female and female genital genitalia as inferior, while privileging the destiny of the male uh, penis, penis envy, and the phallus. Um, so, but his, in some ways his most brilliant theorizing begins at the beginning, right? We must make meaning of anatomy and what inspires curiosity and what awakens the child's scientific mind, right? is the discovery of genital difference, of anatomical difference. The boy has a penis and the girl doesn't. This discovery of difference, right? Difference, instead of being difference is something to you. Ignore or reject or annihilate. Difference inspires the whole psychoanalytic project. We could say it inspires the whole democratic project. Difference awakens the child's mind. How to make meaning of this difference. So if we don't just, um, you know, take the most, uh, you know, more negative interpretations of Freud, um, but look at um, this sort of very bold streak he makes, um, we could say that this is the opening up of a space, uh, a space for curiosity. It's the space that's, in the absence of the penis, We there's a space that inspires curiosity. But, unfortunately, Freud filled that space in with a lot of phallocentric theorizing, mm. as did many subsequent generations of analysts. Um... And so we want to rename remember to name that space we want to name uh female voice, a female body. we want to name what's unnameable that pushes us to the frontiers of knowing and here I cite the work of um the French philosopher Bedou because I think his project um on naming the unnameable the current and it's this endless infinite it brings us into part of the beauty and mystery of psychoanalysis it's it's an unfinished project just as democracy always will be um because we can never perf- perfectly fill in the gap it will always once we do that we've um we're back to the realm of um dogma and tyranny but when we keep that space open and I want to use again the metaphor of the female space, the female genital space mm-hmm. um, to say that when we can keep that space open there's actually room for a potent discourse there's room for the interpenetration between vaginal symbols and phallic symbols there's room for the interpenetration and intercourse of exciting, new, maybe threatening, scary, uh, but vitalizing ideas, and for tapping into the energetic, the reverberant dimensions of the female genital cavity, the... um, the bodily energies, that again, psychoanalysis sort of moved away from, and that's implicit in the First Amendment, right? We have the right to physical assembly, we have the right to bring our bodies into collective sphere, Mm -hmm. into shared communication. And, you know, unfortunately, what we see is that the police, you know, that, that, that there's a tension between freedom and constraint there, while we need some boundary too often that it degrades into a kind of um, control, again, a phallocentric control of the physical body when it's in public space in an intimate interaction.
1: I think that is but. so beautifully put. mm mm-hmm. I want to, yeah, no, that was fantastic. What a, we, I feel like we could wrap up right with that comment. I want to, um, we're coming to the end, but I, I want to read a quote towards the end of your book from page 242. I think it, it kind of sums up what we're talking about, but I think you actually just said it Um uh, very beautifully. You say on page 242, while it is true that not everyone can have a vagina, we all can and must claim its symbolic space, the vaginal space. It's not a symbol of invisibility or inferiority. In naming it, we bring space into presence. Its receptivity and responsiveness open to the possibility for mystery and for knowledge. We may dread naming and knowing, but we also desire them. That desire is itself dependent on naming and knowing what lies at the brink of what cannot be fully known. Desire is actually born in our very need to claim it, to experience and sustain receptivity, to sustain a reverberant gap, a feminine space of births, desire. I love that. That's exactly what you were just saying.
0: Mm. Yeah, it came, you know, through the writing of this book and through contemplating all of this, I kept returning to um, how gender becomes a metaphor for all of the gaps. Mm. Um, And for um, if we don't begin to name and Deal at least within psychoanalysis, but also symbolic life and cultural sphere. Um, we 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 lose a huge opportunity to begin to level the playing field. And if we don't level the playing field, we'll always have a public discourse, and we see it in the clinic. We see how our patients struggle with resentments and hate born of in- inequities. Um, of the way life has been unfair for them, the way the treatment um, is grounded in something that fe- in a power dynamic that feels um, uh, disenfranchising and and inhuman in some way, mm-hmm. and or dehumanizing. And so, I think we, I think it's a very powerful metaphor. And the more we can claim this space and privilege it and not degrade it, um, I think we open a sphere where psychoanalysis and democracy can both prosper and where symbolic life, um, free, genuine free speech and um, and, and the and the content of experience that goes with genuine free speech, which which I think um, is much more of a discourse of love, of of recognition, of mutual recognition, of sharing, and I don't, it sounds sort of like pie in the sky and um, sentimental, but I believe that clinical experience shows this to be the case, that um, as we move out of our patient's um, hate speech, as we translate their hate, as we bear their, the burden of their grievances and and wounds, and as we also enlist them into um, enfranchisement, and as we are willing to concede losses to our own privileged, protective role as analysts um, to genuinely create
1: a more inclusive uh,
0: level playing field that everybody Everybody starts
1: to win. Well, we're coming to the end of our interview, Jill. Thank you so much for speaking with us.
0: Well, well, fabulous questions, and it's been such a
1: privilege. And really, pleasure. what what are you currently working on? Are you are you working on something new, or what can we look forward to?
0: Well, I'm continuing now to work on uh, finding a way to. Uh, Translate more of this book into more uh, public discourse possibilities, like mm-hmm. blogs and that kind of thing, because I I want to try to reach an audience beyond psychoanalysts. Um, and I'm increasingly fascinated and interested in this question of inequality, and so that's sort of an ongoing quest and hunger uh, to um, to focus my work on on how Sexuality, race, class—all of the inequities can how speech can begin to bridge these gaps. No, 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 um, not, not stopping anytime soon.
1: Good, endlessly rich questions. <laughs> Good. Well, the book is *Feminine Law*, Freud, Free Speech, and the Voice of Desire by Jill Gentile with Michael Macrone. Michael Macrone. Sorry, I've gotten that wrong so many times. Um, Jill, thank you so much again for speaking with us.
0: My pleasure, so great appreciation. Well, thank you for such great questions. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom?